good morning, Life Church, and good morning to all of you who are joining us online this morning. Greetings from beautiful North Carolina, where it is 55 degrees and clear out right now. Absolutely beautiful. Now, uh, we began this series a number of weeks ago called The God Questions, but just a couple weeks ago, we posed this question. How can I understand the Bible better? And here's how I'd like to begin. Some watching today were raised as Jesus followers and some were not. But if you were, maybe you received your first Bible when you were a kid. Maybe your parents or your grandparents gave it to you. And some families kind of feel like, okay, we got Johnny a Bible. We prayed him and led him in the salvation prayer, got him baptized. And now all we got to do is teach him to drive and we're good. Maybe that was your experience. You got your first Bible when you were a kid and you know as well as I do that it doesn't come with instructions. And nobody told you that this big book, the Bible, was really arranged around two big covenants. More than that really, but two main ones, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I was told, it's God's word, it's all true. You respect it and you revere it and now you've got your own. Now, it would have been very helpful to be told about the two different covenants because I didn't figure that out until way later in life. And I'm convinced that this omission is one of the main reasons that so many people get this low level of confusion that lingers with them throughout their life and eventually they get weary of it. They may or may not even voice it as such, but we see this long-term slight confusion and sometimes it leads people to just kind of quit in the future. We've seen this too many times to count. You know, when people hit their late teens or their 20s or so, that low-grade confusion finally causes them to just bail on the whole thing. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're drifting away. Now, for most Americans, this doubt and confusion uh, quite often orients around the Bible or something in the Old Testament or maybe a criticism of the Bible that you heard that was really sounded pretty convincing to you. And now you're wobbling in your confidence because of it. Now, if that's the case, I'm really, really glad you're here today and uh, watching this video because we're gonna talk about one of the most overlooked and least discussed net narratives in the New Testament. Uh, We're gonna go further in the book of Acts than where we left off last week. Now, Acts documents what really happened with all the followers of Jesus after the resurrection for almost the next 30 years. Now, this section really doesn't get very much attention, but this biblical account it's, there's a big foundational meeting that is so important because it defines your relationship with the Old Testament. Because think about this, critics don't define our relationship with the Old Testament. Our mood doesn't define our relationship with the Old Testament. Even our level of doubt or faith doesn't define it. God's people who are closest to Jesus, the center of the action in the book of Acts, people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, God used them to help define how the Old Testament would relate to our lives. Now, because that maybe was not defined for you growing up, or maybe it was misdefined for you in some way, it could be something that's tripped you up in your faith. And the truth can set you free. Truth is awesome in that way. Now, the early church, as we discovered last week, was very Jewish because almost all the early Christians were Jewish. Not only that, but most of them stayed pretty close to Judea but they were Jewish and they had embraced Jesus as their savior and as their Messiah, but their consciences were still very much tied into what they were taught as kids. So consequently, they have this law of Moses that they'd been raised on, which is God's covenant with Israel. Then they had the new covenant that Jesus established, and now they're mixing and matching covenants. It's hard not to. 
little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Moses. And then eventually we're going to see, it took them about 20 years or so to finally break this habit, but they eventually broke it. And I'm convinced that we can as well. So we left off last week in our story with Saul of Tarsus, the former persecutor of Christianity. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He's eventually come to be known as the Apostle Paul, which is just his Roman name, and we'll call him Paul from this point on. Paul's up in the city of Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in what is now modern-day Turkey. He's with a friend named Barnabas, and Antioch is not a Jewish area at all. It's a Gentile city. And so these guys go in and they're preaching Jesus, telling people that God has done something amazing for all mankind, just happened about 300 miles from here. It's for everybody, it's for everybody, that God sent Jesus to take on the penalty, pay the penalty for the sins of the whole world, including you. And so Gentiles start turning to Jesus, embracing the good news, and they're now, they're now followers of Jesus. Now, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the mix-and-match Jewish Christians, who are also known as the circumcised believers, they hear what's going on up in Antioch, and they go, no way. Paul is up there telling these folks that they don't need to keep the law, that Moses is out and Jesus is in. We're not having that. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is the Savior. He's the guy. But Moses is our guy. He has always been our guy. Got to keep the Moses law. So they sent their own missionaries up to the city of up to the city of Antioch to come in behind the Apostle Paul and teach everybody a different message. Because the Jewish message to these brand new Gentile Christians in Antioch was keeping the law of Moses is a condition for salvation. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, if you want to be saved and included in the church in this new covenant, you have to keep the law. Now, this is wonderfully stated in a very concise way in Acts 15, 1, where it says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, for Jewish people, circumcision for men was the mark of the old covenant. So they circumcised little boys on the eighth day. And if you were adult and you wanted to convert to Judaism, well, you wanted to be a part of the covenant, well, it wasn't very pleasant, but you could go and be circumcised as an, as an adult male. So these guys sneak in behind the Apostle Paul and they say, okay, Paul didn't tell you the whole story, okay? You gotta have a surgery. This is salvation by surgery, okay? You're, if you really wanna be a follower of Jesus, you gotta get in on the law of Moses and step one is you have to be circumcised. And they're like, where's Paul? <laughs> he didn't tell us that part. That probably made for some awkward moments as the family pulls up the church. They all pull up in their SUV and their minivan and dad goes, Honey, you and the kids go on in. I, I got to think about this a little bit. <laughs> so they're blending the old covenant and the new. They're blending Moses and Jesus, and it's becoming a way of life for them. And when Paul shows up, he's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? What are you doing? And now we have a conflict in the church amongst the leaders of the church because Paul is saying you're saved by grace through faith. And the circumcised believers are saying, yeah, it's by grace through faith, and it's also surgery and also the law of Moses. So there's disagreement here. And these poor new Gentile believers, new Christians, hundreds and hundreds of them now, they're like saying, who's Moses? Well, see, wasn't he the center for the Philadelphia 76ers? I, we don't know your stories. We're not Jewish. This is a big deal, friends. 
So Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church in Antioch, along with a few other believers, to go back to Jerusalem to see the apostles about this. These are the men who walked with Jesus. Now, Peter's there, James is there, John's, they're all there. Now, why would they go back to Jerusalem to sort this out? Here's the answer. There's no Bible at this time. There's no New Testament documents. Paul hadn't written the letters that are floating around to the believers. The gospels hadn't even been, been written yet. Very soon, but not quite yet. The world is still pretty much filled with eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. This is now about 20 years after the resurrection. The church is growing like crazy, but now there's a problem and these men are the only ones who can sort it out. And by the time that we get to this point in history, the number one guy in the church over Jerusalem is none other than James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James was not 100% convinced that Jesus was who he said he was until the resurrection. Now, 20 years later, he's now the number one guy in the church in Jerusalem. This is real significant evidence that something radical happened to him. So you got this group from Antioch coming down representing the growing world of Gentile believers. You got the group from Jerusalem for the Jewish perspective. And the Jerusalem group is like, these new believers, they have to keep the law. We all do. But the group from Antioch is going, people do not have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. So they had this big meeting and the agenda was simply this, the Gentiles relationship to the law of Moses. But for us, I'll put it in different terms. Your relationship to the first half of your English Bible, the Old Testament. What should your relationship to the Old Testament be? Lots of us were raised to believe it's all God's word. It's all true. That's correct. And then we heard, so do all of it. Not correct. Not correct. 20 years after the resurrection, the church is still sorting this out. Is this for everybody, for all time? Do we keep all of it? Do we keep part of it? Do the Gentiles have to live and believe and act like Jews in order to be Christians? So they get together, they had this big council, all these people crowded together in Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, five, it says this, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Wait, what? The Pharisees? In the Gospels, the Pharisees were the ones that were responsible for having Jesus arrested. They worked with Caiaphas to have him crucified. Their whole history says that, says that law is how you connect with God. But 20 years after the resurrection, we find a bunch of Pharisees who are now Jesus followers. So here's the question. What changed their mind? What changed these Pharisees' mind? The Sermon on the Mount? Prodigal son story? Parable of the Good Samaritan? Nope. They saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And they said, okay, we were wrong. When someone predicts their own death and resurrection, you might want to pay attention to them. So 20 years now after the resurrection, there are Pharisees who are now Jesus followers. They're leaders in the church. Men who are steeped in the law and they're so bound to the old law of Moses. And now they're trying to integrate it with the teaching and the claims of Jesus. So they're the mix and match group, and they're insisting that everyone must follow the old law. And so this big debate breaks out, and Luke puts it this way. He says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, if you were here last week, Peter had this episode that was engineered by God. 
because 15 years after the resurrection, Peter still won't go into a Gentile's home. Why? Because Peter's Jewish and he's kind of hanging on to the law of Moses. A little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus. But God made sure he got straight on this. So Peter gets up in this meeting and here's what he says in verse number seven. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the, the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He's saying, you guys remember, I was just minding my own business in Joppa. I was up on the roof there getting ready to have lunch. Then God spoke to me about this, and we saw what God did. They believed the message, and not only that, but God gave them the Holy Spirit. Now listen to these words. Just as he did to us. It's almost impossible for us, friends. 21st century Gentile Christians, it's just about impossible for us to comprehend the seismic shift that's involved in just those six words. Just as he did to us. Now, we need to understand this. Our Old Testament is very specific. God favors the Jews more than he does anybody else. And an enemy of the Jews is an enemy of God. This is why you read, when you read some of the Old Testament, maybe like in the Psalms, it can be a little confusing. I mean, on one hand, God is great and God is good. And then it's like, and kill my enemies and destroy their crops and hope their children die. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, David, you okay, man? Did you forget your medication or something? But David was actually consistent to believe like this. We're God's chosen people and God is gonna bless us and we have the right way of worship and everybody else is a pagan. They're all idol worshipers and please God destroy them just to prove that, that our God is bigger than their little G God. That's just their worldview at the time. And that's the way it was. They didn't misunderstand their scriptures. That's how the world was. But now a new reality was setting in. It's different than it was before. And it took Peter about 15 years to fully realize that God has thrown open the doors to outsiders. And God did something through the Jews for the world. But the through the Jews part is over. And now something new and better and inclusive has come. What was once reserved for the Jews is now available to everyone and better. Peter gets this now. And now in verse 10, kind of hits the fan once and for all, and Peter just puts diplomacy aside. And he says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He's saying, guys, why? Why? Why are you testing God's patience by putting the burden of the law on the Gentiles, stuff that we ourselves couldn't keep? He's saying, we're not even good at this. Why would you put this on them? In verse 11, he follows up and says, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. In essence, Peter is saying, we Jesus following Jews must move in their direction and stop expecting them to move in ours. Peter might have said, God did what he was going to do with us, and now he's doing something for the whole world, and we need to be a part of it, even if it means putting aside the, tradi the traditions that we're all very, very comfortable with. It took him 20 years, but Peter finally figured out that Christianity was not Judaism 2.0. This is not just an add-on to what they already had. 
No more mixing and matching, no blending, no little bit of Jesus, little bit of Moses. The law of Moses, God's covenant with Israel, was a means to an extraordinary end. Then James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and he reminds them, he says, guys, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Our prophets, they foretold of a time when there would be this brand new covenant. Our, our prophets foretold that, that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. We should have seen this coming. Then he concludes with a statement in verse 19. This statement should be marching orders for all churches across the world. It's not, but it should be. He says, it is my judgment then, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Meaning, people do not have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. That's incredibly helpful, incredibly loving, and incredibly clear. What's not so clear is what he says next. It can appear so confusing that it's no wonder that the modern church has virtually ignored it, because it looks weird. Now, before I tell you what he says, remember, 300 miles north, you got hundreds and hundreds of Gentiles, and they're waiting to hear what this group comes to decide. And the men are the most nervous of all, right? They don't like this salvation by surgery thing, and they hope that gets voted down and put aside. So back in Jerusalem now, James says in verse 20, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What? Yeah, yeah, this is what we're going to tell them. This should solve the problem. Tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, at first glance, it looks like he's just kind of cherry-picking from the Law of Moses. You're just at a glance. He's like, okay, they don't have to do all 630 commands, but let's just give them a few, you know, so they got to do something. This is really important because that's not what he's doing at all. And here's his explanation for this strange group of Old Testament-ish sort of commands because he goes on. Here's what he says. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, the Old Testament's been around so long, it's been preached everywhere. It's out there everywhere, including Antioch, where, where you, you guys just came from. It's even available up there. But these things I mentioned, these are hot button issues in our day. Here's a good question. Here's a really good question. Why does James pick these commands? Why does he, he, pick, he pick these few commands to send to the Gentile Christians? Why doesn't he say, okay, let's send a few to the Gentiles. What do, what do we got here? Thou shalt not steal. That's a good one. Well, we send that one to him. What else you got? Thou shalt not murder. Okay, that's a really good one. Let's send that. What else? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Great, good. Let's just send him those three. No. Why the food thing? And then why this very general statement about no sexual immorality? Here's what's really, really, really important to know. Those imperatives were not about keeping the law of Moses. Those imperatives were about keeping peace in the church. Do you get that? Those few that they picked out, that was not about keeping the law of Moses. It was about attempting to keep peace in the church. He's asking these Gentile believers to make some dietary concessions for the sake of the unity of the church because he knew no matter what they taught, for a Jewish person, these are super sensitive things. Because some Jewish people are like, okay, I know we're free and I know Peter had a vision, but I just can't eat pork and shrimp. I can't do it. <laughs> so they're saying, look, tell the Gentiles, let's all make some concessions here so we can have one unified church and not two. 
We're not supposed to create a Gentile church and a Jewish church. We're going for unity. This is all about peacekeeping, not law keeping. And it was doable. So he's saying for the sake of Jewish people everywhere who are hardwired to the dietary laws of Moses, he's saying just buy the plain chicken at the market. Don't buy the chicken that comes in the bin that advertises this is from Baal's market. This is sacrifice to idols because that was a regular thing. Food sacrifice to idols was all over the market. Okay, then James says, okay, and abstain from sexual immorality. Now keep in mind to whom this message is going. People hundreds away from the center of Judaism, Gentile cities like Antioch, like Athens, Corinth, and plenty of others. These places are filled with pagans and ex-pagans who participated in temple prostitution and all kinds of bizarre sexual behavior. In the pagan religions, the gods could care less how you treated other people. The gods just wanted sacrifices. Now, there was some civil law in terms of what you could and couldn't do, but in terms of religious law, there is no moral religious law in paganism. So to, to tell a bunch of Gentiles and abstain from sexual immorality, what does that even mean? They desperately need guidance, but they have no idea what the old law says but they knew Jesus. They knew Jesus, and Jesus spoke to this issue apart from the old law, which they didn't know anyway. And we also read that Paul had been teaching in Antioch for almost two years already about living as a believer. And you know what the Apostle Paul consistently tied sexual behavior to? Not the Old Covenant, not the Ten Commandments. There was a New Testament command that Jesus gave us. He says, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So Jesus spoke to, to this. He says, treat others with respect, with dignity, with others' best interest in mind. So, and then when Paul talks about relationships, he said stuff like, in relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. It's new covenant teaching. It's more than simple do's and don'ts. Jesus also said, love your neighbor as yourself. And as Paul taught in the days ahead, he clarified this further for the Jesus followers. He wrote things like, put other people before yourself. And he says, remember your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so is hers, and so is his. The Apostle Paul was, was very, very specific about teaching on sexual immorality, but he did not tie it to the Old Testament, and we should be glad for that. There's a lot of very complicated detail about this in the Old Testament. Paul references none of it, none. There are, now there are multiple teachings from Paul that became New Testament teaching that are very, very helpful for believers to abstain from sexual immorality. But just abstaining from sexual sin does not make someone a follower of Jesus. More, more importantly, the Old Testament was not going to be the go-to source for any behavior in the church. Here's what the Jerusalem Council was saying to the Gentile believers, saying, you're not accountable to the Ten Commandments, you're not accountable to the Jewish law. God has done something new through Jesus. Besides, the New Testament call is actually more demanding. When you begin to view every single person you meet, red, yellow, black, white, rich, poor, you see them as made in the image of God and a potential dwelling place for the Spirit of God, you will treat them well. You will do for them what God in Christ Jesus has done for you. 
This is an extraordinary day in the history of the church. So the church leaders who were closest to the action, who understood this kind of stuff better than we ever could, these leaders let go of the worldview that God loves Jews more than he loves other people. The worldview that you're just a build walls and hunker down and wait for God to protect you. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're supposed to go into all the world and share this message of the good news. So finally, 20 years after the resurrection, Peter, James, John, Barnabas, and all the others, they detached the church from, from Judaism. Not because there was something wrong with Judaism, but because Judaism, the law of Moses, was a means to an extraordinary end. The Old Testament prophets predicted it. And I know, I know, there are people that as they grow as Christians, they think it's cool to take on more and more Jewish traditions because it makes them feel spiritual. That misses the point entirely. Here's the broad context when we think about our Old Testament. The Jewish scriptures are the backstory for the main story. They're a critical backstory. They're divinely inspired. They're from God. They are about God on the move through ancient, ancient times. It's violent, it's disturbing, it offends all of our modern senses, but it's the incredible story of Almighty God playing by the rule of the kingdoms of this world in order to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. So the church began, fueled by the resurrection and eyewitnesses to that extraordinary event. And it was marked with unprecedented diversity and with a code of conduct that elevated the status of people who had no status. And yet somehow at the same time, it reduces everyone to the status of a sinner in need of a savior, Jesus. Now let me close by reading this summary that's written by the Apostle Paul many years later. It comes from Philippians chapter three, starting in verse two. Paul says, Steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances, knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. Wow. <clears throat> so I tell all of us, grasp and hold on to the right perspective of the Old Testament. And sometime real soon, 
I'm going to talk about why God let the harsh, unthinkable stuff happen in the Old Testament and why God himself is behind some of it. I mean, lots of those what about that sort of questions that come up related to all those things, because there are really good answers for those. And the answers to those difficult questions are actually part of the good news. <laughs> God's word is wonderful, all of it. But let's, let's have the right perspective of the different covenants and lean into what we're called to lean into, okay? Let's take a moment and pray, can we? Lord, we thank you for all of your word, all of it inspired and holy and God-ordained, and we thank you for all of it. Help us, Lord, to become sharper as we look at the different covenants and understanding what the new covenant really involves for all of us. And Lord, let us not settle for anything less than Jesus died to give us. We don't wanna live beneath our privilege. Lord, you went through great lengths to enable us to live in the new covenant. So Lord, let us swim deeply in it, we pray. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Let me leave you with this. Until we see each other again, go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.